Hey everyone, this is Chris. I just wanted to let you know before you listen to this week's episode of The Setup that we recorded this ahead of time as John is traveling for work in Europe with Shoot Ogawa. So we recorded this before Johnny Thompson passed away. Obviously, it's a huge loss to the magic community and our thoughts go out to his family and loved ones. Thanks. Spanish music. Spanish music. It's the setup. Uh, this is a special banked episode. Special banked episode. Uh, because right now... I'm in you're, Europe. Yes. When you listen to this, John will be in Europe. Yeah. Um, helping with a tour mm-hmm. uh, and visiting all sorts of Parisian cities. Yeah. Or, I mean, sorry, French cities. Yeah. Like, there's only one Parisian I city. I guess that would be uh, Parisia. Yeah, yeah. Parisia. Um, so we've recorded Are a couple of episodes. Video game, Prince of Parisia? Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Only mildly racist. <laughs> Prince of Persia is a great game. It is a great game. Um, the movie. Which ones have you played, though? Have you played the very original? I Prince? played the original Prince of Persia. The, like, 2D one? Mm-hmm. Oh. How did you play that? No, oh, wait. Is there a, like, <laughs> original, like... Some people are older than others. <laughs> yes, there's an original... Um, in fact, like Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. Yes, that is a reboot. That is like, like a, literally like, like fifteen years after the original game. <laughs> Did not know that. So the original Prince of Persia luckily game. Luckily, it was saved by the franchise was saved by a movie starring Jake Gyllenhaal. The Sands of Time is a great game. Yeah, fantastic um, game. I remember vaguely in that game there were these like rooms you would go into to like save your progress, mm-hmm. and you drink water from a very beautiful fountain. Mm-hmm. And one of those rooms, which had been just like checkpoints the whole time, right, had like a ramp at the back of it. If you walked through it. And walked up this ramp for like three minutes. It got you to this whole like hidden area. Cool. And it was only if you just happen to sit in the save checkpoint room and like walk around and explore it. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very cool. The original Prince of Persia is a 2D platformer um, and was one of the first games that had like sort of realistic animation with the guy like holding on, climbing up. Cool. Doing sword fighting and stuff. It's actually very enjoyable. That's really fun. Played on the Commodore 64. <laughs> the what? The Commodore 64 personal computer. Oh, okay. Have you heard of the Apple II? Yes. This is competitive with that. Got it. I, I only know about the Apple II because of the Steve Jobs movie. Oh, yeah. With um, Michael Fassbender, which is a great movie. That is it? a terrific movie. Um, much better. I actually never saw the other one with Ashton Kutcher. I've seen the other one. It's not bad, actually, but this one is much better. I know. I, I, I could tell. I'm like, oh, I would probably really like it because I was listening to your other podcast with your husband, uh-huh. and I believe something along the lines of you saying the only movie you've ever liked Josh Gaddon was yes, that one. And I went, that that, one. that's high praise. Yeah. Um, but Steve Jobs, the movie uh, with Aaron Sorkin directed um, by Danny Trainspotting. Uh, uh, um, Danny Sun- Tanner from uh, full house Trainspotting. Danny Boyle. Sunshine. Danny Boyle. Yeah. Directed Steve Jobs. Um, I think that um, that's a great. Seth Rogen is fantastic in that movie. Yeah, it's like and, one of my favorite uh, things Seth Rogen has done. Sorkin is an incredible writer. Danny Boyle is a great director. I think the combination of them is works really well. I think that uh, then I think last year I watched Sorkin direct his own material. Molly's game. Molly's game. Not so great. Did you not like Molly's game? <laughs> I, I liked Molly's game. It was fine. I just felt a little bit like, hey, I'm a director. Let me show you all my directy tricks. Right. There's a lot of just like charts and graphs and cross-cutting and stuff that was just like didn't feel super necessary for the storytelling my issue with molly's game was there's this some of the writing to be honest with you Uh like there's a scene where she just 
literally crashes into her dad out of nowhere who like lives on the other side of the country do you remember that no i don't she's remember. ice skating she's like stress oh, ice skating, yes, yes and her dad just appears to the point where it's, it's so ridiculous that he would be there at that exact time that you think it's a hallucination right and, and like she sees someone that looks like her dad and accidentally crashes but no she like crashes into her dad at an ice skating ring played by kevin <laughs> costner you're like well this is a weird how are they gonna walk their way out of this but they don't it's just him no just a anyway magic uh <laughs> I have to get my Sorkin where I can now because I've left season four of West Wing. Right. And season five sucks. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's some rough moments in there. You have a book in front of us. I have a book in front of us. Uh, this is Showmanship for Magicians by Daryl Fitzke. Mm-hmm. The Fundamentals of Showmanship and Presentation. This is a, the, a three-book trilogy called the Fitzke Trilogy. i am only just started this one, and I know I've been talking about it a couple times. Who is podcast. this Daryl Fitzke? I don't really know, to be honest with you. Uh-huh. I'm reason there's a name that came up in the Temeries book that I wasn't familiar with, that he was like. Is there an index in the back with names? Uh, He's holding the magic rainbow, by the way. There is not an index in the back with names. Okay, well, uh, so this is. <laughs> by the way, did you see the the blo- the blood that I spit out of my yes, mouth? Yes, really thank you for posting like... that on Facebook. Yeah. and it was a, a Instagram, and it was a slow Instagram day for me. So yeah. every time I opened Instagram that day, it was a picture of you having coughed up blood in your sink. Yeah, I I coughed up blood, and it looked exactly like the logo to the magic rainbow. That's yeah, on our was. Instagram. It's very charming. Um. Keep going with Dar- uh, Fitzky, Daryl. So this book just is, is talking, I mean, in the first few sections, it's basically talking about why no one likes magic. And this <laughs> was written in like 1942, and it's pretty incredible. But he, he raises an interesting point about keeping up with the times, and he thinks that a lot of magicians are not keeping up with the times very well. And he references, I believe it's Harry Keller. I actually stumbled over this exact same thing when I was on Taylor Hughes' podcast. A few weeks back, because I mentioned this book. But he was talking about Keller, and he was saying that that at the time was the most famous piece of like theater in in the country. Uh-huh. And uh, let, let's see. he I think I have the passage here. Right. So, he, yeah, I found the passage. You might edit, it took me a second. You might want to edit that section down a little bit. I, <laughs> no, I'm going to extend that silence. There's a heavy, heavy little silence there <laughs> as I was looking through the pages. Sorry, audience. I should have had this prepped ready to go, but I didn't. Anyway, was a man who was once called the greatest agent in the show business remarked to me that the customers for a magic show now were only kids, bohunks, and magic nuts. At one time, he was the agent for what was then the greatest magic show in existence. I believe this man's judgment is sound. But it is obvious the magicians have only themselves to blame. That was Thurston. The Thurston show was at the time, at one time, known as the most valuable property in show business. No magic show even remotely approaches that status now. Obviously, magic itself is not to blame. It attained this distinction once. It attained this distinction, now all in bold, when its method of presentation was geared and attuned to the times. That particular method of presentation, so successful once, is no longer suitable. It is not in key or in sympathy or in tempo with what is now the modern concept of entertainment or with what the present-day public seeks. I mean, that could have been written a week ago. Wait, when was this written? 1942. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Uh, and you can say, first off, you could say that about any, but any art, but I never really thought about that in those terms. I guess I don't know my history well enough to know that Thurston's show was, like, the most predominant theatrical property in the world. Yeah. And you did have that a lot with magicians. I mean, you know, uh, Cardini was kind of like that. Chung Ling Su, I know you're not a fan of, was a very... <laughs> I love Chung Ling Su. <laughs> um, I will have a Chung Ling Su poster one day. 
I, I hope you do. Uh, oh, and I, you know what? In fact, I actually have one. Um, have you ever heard of Sebastian Konopix? Uh-uh. So I hope I'm saying that. Konopix? I, I, I don't know how to say his name. He's a German uh, artist and photographer, and he debuted this art installation at Magic Live last year in 2018 with these things called Who Am I posters. And mm. what he did was he took these magicians with very iconic acts, and he made them into these sort of abstract posters that sort of captured the spirit of that act or like a very important part of that act. And it said, like, who am I on it? And you're supposed to figure out who it was. Uh-huh. And they all have little QR codes for you to scan and see who it was. And th- a lot of them are incredible. And he sells those prints for, like, $150 on his website. And there's several that I really want. Uh-huh. Anyway, he has a Chungling Sioux one that is pretty, <laughs> pretty good. Wait, keep talking while I Google this, because i got to see what this Chungling Sioux print looks like. Uh, it, and it's not what you would want it to be, but it's about... Uh, right, right. I mean, uh, hopefully it's so more... Sebastian, K-O-N-O-P-I-X. And then, like, if you type in Sebastian Konopik's Who Am I?, It'll take you to that gallery. Very good. Anyway. So, but back to this book, though. Uh, yeah, that was something I, I hadn't really thought of, is that I guess, you know, in the er, in the turn of the century, as vaudeville was kind of becoming more popular, and before we had sort of the, the Broadway system that we now have it, which didn't really exist until, what, the 40s or so? Mm. 40s or 50s? Uh, I guess you would have had some magicians being really, really dominant theatrical presence. I can't get. I've gone to this guy's website and I can't get off of this photo of Dan Harlan. This is like <laughs> the front page of Canopics.com. I don't know how that is the and case. I literally can't get to it. Oh, here we go. There's Kim Young Min. That's a really nice photo. Let's um, see. Do you know these people? Uh, I. Um, the Ehrlich I, Brothers. The Ehrlich Brothers. Magic J. Sang Sim Kim. I know him. He's great. You know what's great about your exposure to FISM? And Asian, uh, who's the magic priest? Uh, is that uh, you have uh, I, you have a higher level than average of recognizing Korean faces? You know what's amazing, and this is what it uh, what it says about how much I love who's Asian that? magic. Um, I can't, I don't know who that is. It's Choi Jun Hyung. That's Han. That's Man Ho Han. Uh, I thought I always said Han Man Ho. He got third place to FISM. His act is amazing. Oh, Ding Yang. We're just now saying names. Go to this menu here, and I'll take you to the Who Am I. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah, you're just looking at that? like that's. Um, oh wait, this is the Young so Yoli. these are this is photography of the FISM that you were at, yeah. basically. Oh, go back one. That was Miguel Munoz competing for the Grand Prix. Yeah. That's a beautiful. Fucking so photo. Uh, this is an advanced skill you have of being able to recognize Asian celebrities. I mean, truly, it's like a rare skill among. Amongst, I will say, white people. <laughs> oh. But to me, I mean, honestly, like I couldn't pick out like K-pop stars. Well, so it's funny. So he had this big art installation of all of these uh, really iconic acts. And then I believe it was like his girlfriend. Um, she was there. She's also a magician. And she had this really cool, it's actually a very cool conceptual little book. It was a triangular book. And what it was is that every... The, no. And depending on which direction you open that triangle was, it was like a different book. Uh-huh. So every page was like pulled oh. together in this triangle thing. So depending on which way you open the book, it was basically three different books. You could go, th- you could go through it cover to cover three different times. Uh-huh. And one was a bunch of Who Am I's that were European magicians. One were Who Am I's of Asian magicians. And one was Who Am I's of American magicians. Oh. And the European ones, I got like 60%. I couldn't tell, you know, they're like... I know who Dynamo is, but his was this abstract thing of him walking on the the Thames, and right. I didn't know that that was his big thing, so like I didn't recognize that one. Things like that. And the American magicians, I did really badly on. I got like half of them. Uh-huh. The Asian magicians, hundred <laughs> percent. I got every single one of them. And like people are sitting around me, and we're all trying to guess. And, and then like I'm trying not to spoil it. And like the moment the page turns, like I'm like, oh, Mike Chow, next, <laughs> let's wow. do it. 
So I I know Asian magic very well. I'm Are gonna, these really pretty though? I'm going to predict on this podcast right now, ten years from now, John Accardo will be married to a Korean lady magician. I mean, I'm into it. That's not a bad result, is it? <laughs> no, that'd be great. Goes over. To I don't film. know if I could ever date a magician. Oh really? I don't know if I ever could. Why? I don't know. What 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 are your concerns? I think I, I I competitiveness? Maybe? I don't know. Um um let's let's unpack this. Uh, <laughs> let's, we were just talking before we recorded. I'm like, I wonder if we have anything to talk about on this, this episode. Is great. And now here we are talking about my my fears of dating uh so, uh, uh, by the way, I've been in t- long-term relationships with someone that was not in any kind of show business, and now my husband is an actor right. who's in Australia right now <laughs> acting in a play. So I've been on both sides of this, and there's pros and cons to it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you were dating a magician, would you, you'd probably inevitably want to maybe work on stuff together. Right. Does that scare you? <laughs> I think it does. I don't know. I, uh, I guess it does kind of, yeah, I'm not sure I would want to do that. Yeah. I'm not sure if I would want like that <laughs> tied so closely to. I I I wish I had a more articulate way of. Well, what if you had somebody that you could have all of your magic nerd conversations with, and then and we had sex. Yeah, like I mean that does sound pretty good. <laughs> not that that's all what the relationship is about, but like you know. No, I think it's just talking about magic and sex. You could integrate it into the sex too, right? You know, hey, there's a lot of humor to be had there. Yeah. I mean, or just like a relationship where the other person isn't constantly making those out of date magic jokes. Well, uh, then, then don't date don't don't date a bad magician. <laughs> I, this is actually this is just revealing that you have uh, apprehension about magicians in general. Yes, not that it's a person you're in a relationship with. <laughs> so you just have to make sure the same way that you have magicians that you like. Right. You have to find what I'm saying is I want to date Robert Ramirez. Yeah, there you go. That's. There's nothing wrong with that nothing in this wrong. in this day and age. No. I mean, if you want to go to hell, it's your business. <laughs> uh, two magicians that would, is that what, that would go straight to hell. Two magicians, one cup and balls. Um, <laughs> what is the, what are the ones on this Canopics that the you like? Well, there used to be a lot more, but he scaled back. The, the, I was gonna buy some, and then they he took the website down. I love that bot that uh, Lance Burton one, bottom center. Um, I think royal it's royal. Yeah, it's the dove and the three candles. I think that one's beautiful. And Kim this- Young Min does have one. It's called Desert of Dreams. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that one's beautiful. And is it because these are routines that are? Um, well, I mean, I'm sure you want this mind freak one. Oh, fuck you. Um, <laughs> um, that um, these are sort of iconic routines as well. Yeah, these are I- iconic. Like you can see, there's a Del- Delgadio one yeah, towards I the bottom there. So these are yeah iconic What's routines. Kiss the Frog. Uh, Kiss the Frog is Jorge Blas. I'm actually, the only place I've ever seen him do it was on Fool Us. That's what Jorge blasted on Fool Us. And it's a uh-huh. little thing on the green origami frog. Now, what you're not getting here is that the actual ones that he had of these, and most of these are what he had at Magic Live, were all made in very distinct textured ways. Mm. So, like, what he did, um, and so they're, uh, they're like, painted. They're not just, like, uh, printed. Um, and some of them are beautiful. And so they were made. So that's Desert of Dreams. That's Kim Young-min. What and the that fuck is Cyborg? Cyborg is uh, Anastasia Sin, uh, um, the Amazing Jonathan's wife. I actually do not know that act okay, is. Okay, good. I'm glad that it's a woman magician because this poster is... Yeah. If it was a guy's act, <laughs> this is yeah. what the routine was. Uh, oh, and that was Chung Ling Su. Didn't love that. Wait, this one? Yeah. It's the ponytail and the plate and the bloody plate. Really? Yeah, because he died doing a bullet catch where he would catch a bullet on a plate. Oh my god! Yeah, I thought because it's called Death by Magic. I thought that was a ref- reference to um, that Netflix TV show. No, have you watched any of that? I have not. I've heard it's terrible. Uh, I've not watched any of it either. Um, well, 
These are adorable. Kono picks. Go look at a giant photo of Dan Harlan and then click your way to the poster. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, what are we talking about? Uh, besides me wanting to bang Robert Ramirez. Um, well, so um, what are you? Are you what? Are you liking other stuff from this book? Um, is it a trilogy? It says it's a trilogy, and each of them is about a different thing. Yeah. So that's uh, showmanship. The second one is called The Trick Brain. I've not read any of that. I've read a bit of the third one, which is all about misdirection. Uh-huh. And so what's interesting about this, and he 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 breaks down that idea of being present, like or or making your magic uh, very present day, which mm-hmm. I think is an issue he has, which is still very much an issue. And part of the reason is, is he talks about like the, even the kind of tables and props you're using. And he, um, I'll see if I can find it in a second. But yeah. he, he looks for a path. There's a passage in there about the kind of tables that magicians use, like that sort of gold fringe around it, which yeah. 75 years later we're still using. And yeah. he was saying the problem with this table is that it used to be stylistically relevant, but now it's not. And it became an outdated piece of furniture. And right. there's a new modern style. And so these types of things become outdated and then the entire art itself looks dated to an audience he then goes on to say i mean that the problem is and i I totally see where this issue comes from he goes this is the style uh that this is the style that people watched and then when they fell in love with magic maybe as kids so then to them that's what magic is and that's what it looks like and they want to recreate that and so that's they kind of fall into these patterns and that's why you have so many people doing this thing and that's when the top you know the top hat and tails and a rabbit out of a hat becomes iconic because for a while everyone starts doing that mm-hmm. and then th- that's become what magic is he even even actually it's interesting makes a very specific point to not blame magic dealers and he goes look the dealers are going to sell what people are going to buy it's not yeah. their fault mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting point and he goes you need to just make sure that you're making your act more modern and what's interesting about that is and we've talked about this before is how many copycats there are out, out there just in terms of style yeah. like when an act becomes I, I, I'm i trying to think of a good example I can't really think of one maybe you could but Shoot and I talk about this a lot and that's something he is very conscious of when making new material or when he's helping me make new material to stop me in my tracks is that if somebody is popular for doing something uh-huh. everyone's going to start doing it and he goes if someone's if something's really popular like for instance I loved Jan Frisch's Fism Act it's yeah. an absolutely incredible act for my money, one of the five best magic acts I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Absolutely incredible. If you just type in Jan Frisch, it's Y-A-N-N-F-R-I-S-C-H on YouTube. If you don't know who that is for some ungodly reason, and just be absolutely delighted by how incredible and well thought out that act is. Anyway, so, so a lot of people started doing routines uh, with heavy use of lapping and those... Uh, oh, in the years following that, because it was so popular. They also so put successful. out a six DVD set called Lap. Right, Jan Frisch and, and uh, Danny Dertis. Yeah, which is a fantastic DVD, and I've learned a lot from it. But I was remember I, I was working on a routine that involved some lapping, like a year after that, you know, came out. Not necessarily realizing that I might have been inspired by him that method. Right. And Shoot was saying that he's like, what you need to do is you need to study from him and you need to learn from him but then you need to take all that information and you kind of need to put it in a drawer for like five years because uh-huh. everyone's going to be doing it and you don't want to be doing the same thing right for instance um and like uh even just little things i wish i had a bigger example because then, oh yeah no for instance i mean yuho jin another uh, who won the grand prix the same year as Jan frisch mm-hmm. in uh, 2012 first korean person to win the grand prix which was a very big deal and now it's happened um I don't know if another Korean person has won the Grand Prix actually since then, but uh, 
<laughs> I was almost like Eric Chen. Uh, Eric Chen was representing Taiwan. Right. That's because um, I'm a racist. Yeah. Um, I didn't know you hated Asians. That was, uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Let's starting, unpack that. Starting with myself. Right. Um, I do have a joke in my stand-up that's uh, like, I don't, I don't like immigrants because I don't trust the first two that I ever met. <laughs> and my parents. <laughs> um, so, but like, Yoho Jin's a great example because that was a huge, that was one of the, the most famous for a while uh, revolutionary uh, acts. Keep talking because I dropped cards and I've got other cards on the floor that I've dropped them on top of. Got it. You don't want to make those up. Okay, well, I'll, I'll just give my, oh yeah, that's a real mess down there. <laughs> that's real bad. Anyway, but Yoho Jin became very iconic for that look and that style of manipulation. And what you find is that people to this day still sort of copy that. Have I seen him? Was he in the um, the the six Korean guys that was at, in Scotland? That I, I don't think he would have been. What's that one no. Snap? The snap, yeah. Which is going to be on Broadway for three weeks in April. Um, at the, uh, I can't remember what theater it is, shit. That's... The Victoria Palace Theater, Victoria something theater? Yeah, I'll just reiterate that my two sort of... This always happens when I go to a fringe, but my two sort of um, retroactive regrets are that I could have literally watched Snap 25 days in a row for free if I wanted to. Did you see it? You saw it, though. I saw it once. Okay. But like, it Did didn't, you like it? Yeah, I liked it, but it didn't occur to me that I was like watching like world-class magicians uh yeah I, I will say that's a little bit to the dutch like a little bit of a criticism of that show but knowing what i know now because then i like told you who i was in that show and you're like oh you mean this guy yeah um the, the two i i can't remember a lot of people in that show but i know kim young min is in that show and i know the um, card production person chang min lee and sand person Yes, sand is kim young min oh and the projection guy. oh ted kim fuck that's a good show yeah Ted so, Kim's incredible. So because See, this is this was me reading that book at Magic Live. I'm like, Chang Min Lee, next. Yeah. Ted Kim, so next. Because I had... Wait, and there was also, I think... Is it possible there was a thing where there was like an artist in a workshop and um, stuff was flying around and then they went back in time and they showed you that it was happening because there was someone invisible... Um, so no, that I don't know. Okay. So imagine this, there's like an artist's workshop and, um, like he's doing tricks that you think are regular magic tricks where like, um, a paintbrush flies around and paints or a marker jumps out of something or there's like visual movement going on. Then the two clowns that were like the framing device of the whole show, Mm -hmm. um, went back in time and one of the characters was invisible. So you saw the whole scene again and what was... Like what you thought the brush was floating by itself before was the invisible person like picking up the brush out of the can. Oh, cool. Okay, I might be conflating this with two other shows. One is another Korean show that I saw with magic in it the year before. Okay. The other is the Mickey magic show at Disneyland Paris, <laughs> <laughs> which also has good magic in it. Um, so anyway, the, my two regrets are I could so I could have seen that every day for free, and it was not sold out. I could have easily walked in that same year. No, or that year, or the year after, the year after. No, no, Eric saw the Snap show with me. So the same year, he and I could have seen for free Hannah Gadsby's Nanette. Oh, really? In Edinburgh. <laughs> oh my God. So, uh, anyway, by the way, um, for Los Angeles people, Hannah Gadsby is going to be here July. She's going to be a Dynasty something. typewriter for like a week, right? Uh, I got a ticket for one show somewhere here in LA. Oh, I thought she was had like a like a five day. Oh, like, maybe run. she is. 
I could be wrong, uh, but I imagine that would sell in LA. That would sell super well. So. Yeah. So now Jan Frisch was uh, his lapping was copied. Yeah, or just that style. And so but was his his style copied because his style is very specific. Or, or just yeah, so that sort of method, and it just became very very popular. Um, right. And then with Yuho Jin, you now after for many the two fisms after that, you've seen lots and lots of people. Him and uh, Lucas, who came in second place that year in manipulation, and is a big force in Korean uh, magic and Korean manipulation. They have these styles that are very, very slow, kind of emotional, wearing very nice suits, uh, kind of standing in one place, beautiful sort of manipulation. Is this generally with um, score? Yeah. Over the top. That's not the way FISM always was, right? I don't know my history on it that well. This is sort of coming from Leonard Green won FISM, right? Yeah. So there's 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 probably if you go back farther in physics there is more like sort of traditional yes magic acts right and not just playing as I said before the soundtrack to Inception over and over right <laughs> uh, soundtrack to uh, um, Prince of Egypt is one of them is it really yeah uh, Kim Young Min Sand Guy he's playing uh, the Burning Bush in <laughs> Prince of Egypt and it was it works so well I wanted to someone just do the soundtrack from like Moana over right. and over. <laughs> Uh, that'll be me. That'll be my act. So wait, the guy that you're talking about, what was the style of his act? Yuho Jin? Yeah. Uh, I'm surprised you've never seen it. I, I probably might... have, but I mean, they're all kind of blend together. Uh, all sort of the same to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I keep forgetting you're joking. I want to be like, how dare you? Oh, this right, is not right. the CD production guy. No, that was probably Hansel Hol He. I, 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 that's a tough name to pronounce. Yeah. Uh, because the, this is a guy that, um, in 2009, um, I actually saw a video of recently where he produces a bunch of compact discs. Right. And he won um, first place in manipulation in 09, I think. I would say that that is uh, uh, I'm tied for first. But. an interesting that that's certainly one that you could say like has probably been that's probably five years old, that compact disc manipulation stuff. Yeah. So bring that out. Except that like even when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is not really what do you mean five years old? Wait. Well, when did that happen? Well, yeah, well, I mean, he won 10 years ago. Right, right. So what I'm saying is it's an old thing that you could like have had in a drawer and you're like, now I'm going to do a bunch of compact disc Oh, sure. I thought you meant that like that technology is becoming outdated, so no one cares about discs anymore. No. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a little bit true. Uh, but I also think that it's kind of a fun use of an old thing because you probably have like a thousand CDs that you don't care about anymore. Right. So it might be a fun thing to like practice. I also think this is... I've got two ideas for magicians that I'll give you for free today. One is, (laughs) I think you could genuinely make a pretty funny comedy routine out of AOL discs uh, with that routine. Just saying like you went to your grandma's house and she had like 500 AOL CDs Uh and you couldn't get rid of them and you're trying to get rid of them and throw them away and every time you threw them away, another one would show up in your hands. Right. Like, I think that would actually be pretty funny. That would be funny, yeah, absolutely. I think anyone under... Well, like you probably don't have a strong relationship to AOL CDs, subscription CDs. No, the the, the furthest back I go with AOL is Instant Messenger. So probably like you'd have to be 30 to get this. But like there was a time when just constantly you were getting AOL 100 free hours CD. They were just sending them to the mail. They were in newspapers. They were everywhere. They were just a thing you couldn't get rid of that wow. were constantly around. So um I'll go ahead and tell you my second idea that I thought would For be free. Funny. Yeah, tell me if anyone is doing this. Someone that does a complete uh, kids show act, and the premise is that they've been misbooked every single time they do a show. And the, the only do shows for adults. Okay. So the thing is, like, 
you do a little work at the top saying like, hey, I'm Gizmo, and uh, I thought this was supposed to be like a bar mitzvah, but I guess <laughs> it's this uh, bachelor party. <laughs> and then they're all doing like kids tricks for adults. Um, and then like they be, you could do a lot of, you could be more suggestive with them if you want. Like you could distort the tricks in a way that would mm-hmm. make it funny for an adult crowd. But I think it'd be just funny to like have that premise of just like, and I actually think a bunch of like, the kind of patrons I've been seeing at magic shows, which are often like inebriated, I feel like they might enjoy being like, get up and just put like a paper cone on your head. Like, I feel like that act might be more robust against like a drunk party of, of idiots in the sense that you could handle them like kids, right? Like your act is a kid's act and you could be having them do very dumb, silly stuff right throughout. So that could work. if anyone's looking for a character, feel free to take it. Gizmo, Gizmo, clown. the kids magician that always books adult gigs. Right. Because um, uh, it's actually kind of inspired by, there's a show in Edinburgh Fringe called, um, uh, what's it called? Wait, what's it called? Fun, Funs and Games. Okay. Uh, one of the most enjoyable shows I've ever, ever seen. Really? So it's basically uh, this guy, Phil, who is, he's been a stand-up, but he, the premise is that he um, is getting a divorce and needs to pay off his bills. So uh-huh. he and his buddies are started doing comedy shows for kids, but they don't have any interest in really doing it. Right. So it's him. There's a guy dressed up like a dog. Uh, there's an uncle who's like basically like Eddie Pepitone. And he gets up and he he does like dumb kids dances. It's like a show for kids, but he has so much disdain for the kids. <laughs> um, and... The that show is actually the funniest when you see them do it for actual kids. Oh, really? So they bring kids up to um, play games and stuff like that, and Phil cheats at all the games. Like they played musical chairs with these little camping chairs, mm-hmm. and he had one like sewn into the back of his jacket. <laughs> so he every time he was running, he always had one to sit down on. And then when the kids act up or he wants to get them off the stage, he he flings candy at them out of his <laughs> pocket as if to like wild animals. Um, and then they just scream at the kids sometimes. <laughs> they just will like it, it the way they manage it is so funny to me. And it's basically like adults doing a bunch of like kids material reluctantly. Right. It's just a funny idea to me. That's really cool. Yeah. That sounds great. Funs and games, check it out. Funs but and games. If anyone wants to be Gizmo, yeah. The the badly booked magician. Gizmo, right. the badly booked magician. Badly booked magician. I like that. That's really funny. Um so uh where are you how do you feel about this uh trip coming up uh i'm excited about it you've I, done this kind of thing before yes yeah, so in 2017 i went to shoot for a five-week tour of uh, the uk and so Which that was long for the uk it was a very long time we i mean we kept joking that like we've probably been to more towns in the uk than people from the uk because <laughs> we I, went I bet you have. everywhere yeah i bet you have for sure and uh that was really i mean we we had about Every like two weeks, we had two days off, so we were working a lot, and that was very challenging. That was very, very, very difficult and exhausting, but also also really, really fun and a yeah. very incredible experience. So that was a good lead into this. This will be about just over three weeks. I think we're doing eighteen lectures in twenty two days, and it'll be really tough because there'll we will not be in English speaking places. Oh, um, most of this will be in France. There will be dates. Have you got any French on you? Uh, I uh, I 
Well, yes and no. I took three years of French in high school. Right. I was bad at it then, and so I like I I was already bad at it eight years ago when I was half paying attention. Let alone the the eight years I have not spent any time thinking about. I don't. I, I think it's. I think our American uh, foreign language teaching. There's something suspect about it because lots of people have taken like three years of a language in their school. Many many people have at least taken one or two mm-hmm. in junior high or high school, and everybody's always just like, "Yeah, I don't remember any of it." Like it doesn't seem to have stuck with many many people. Well, I mean, especially with French, I mean, you're you're kind of putting out what you you're getting out what you put in. Yeah, I'm not having a lot of opportunity to practice it, and I also didn't really give a shit when I was doing it. And yeah, kind of what you needed it. was like a French magic DVD without subtitles. Yes, that was like, I gotta learn this. I gotta figure out what this guy's saying. I bet right. that would have like motivated you to. It like, might have. Um, I mean, I feel like everybody wants to learn Spanish after watching any of those guys. Yeah, just to get their joie de vivre, right? Which is a French term. <laughs> for a Spanish uh, way of life. <laughs> so, yeah, so this will be challenging and it'll be tough. Shoot's done this before. He's done lecture tours in Europe before, so he's a little bit more familiar. Is he touring similar... Um, uh, is he talking about similar things in the lectures? Well, where we are now, I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure. And he uh-huh. and I have been talking about that a lot, like what products to um, bring and what to... Uh, yeah. What to do. That's... Um, Does anyone in... Uh, Anywhere, but like Los Angeles, do, does anyone ever do like master classes where it's like instead of lecturing about uh, maybe the things that shoots bringing there, maybe shoot goes somewhere and the local ring gives them here's three magicians and like work with them each for like half an hour. Yeah, like, things like that would be very interesting. Not not exactly in those terms. But people have done master classes yeah. on certain issues. Like I've heard Joshua Jay doing something like that at the castle. It's like a two day seminar master class. Yeah. I was at a convention once and David Roth had a special like master class on coin magic that you could go to. Uh-huh. Uh things of that nature definitely do exist. I would consider that thing I went to with Juan a, a master class. Uh-huh. Uh did he work with people up there? I, you know, he did not. He did not. Oh, is that, is that what you mean? Well, I'm, I'm partially basing this on master classes that I went to in acting school, and I'm partially basing this on the play Master Class by Terrence McNally, mm-hmm. which uh, I saw with Patti LuPone and Audrey McDonald. Oh. No, I didn't see it with Patti LuPone. I correct that. I saw that with Zoe Caldwell, the original. Oh. So, um, no, the re- I've been thinking about this lately in terms of improv coaching. What made you remember that? Was it the fact that no one yelled at you to turn off your phone? Uh, <laughs> it's the fact that I could understand the vowels she was saying. Oh. I'm not a huge Patti LuPone fan. Neither am I, to be honest with you. Um, I just think that what she does to vowel sounds is ridiculous. Um, so, another reason I bring it up is I was ta- I was thinking about I've done some coaching for the um, uh, UCB diversity group uh, where people volunteer to like coach um, improv students in the diversity program, which is a whole big program of basically anybody from an underrepresented minority can sort of do events in the diversity program, but there's not a ton of events. So I've been thinking like, well, what is the diversity enrollment like the UCB school? What do you mean? Like I mean, how diverse is it? Yeah. Is it how diverse is it? <laughs> it's so diverse. It's not that diverse, but I mean, <laughs> comedy in general, isn't super diverse. I, I thought that maybe in LA in 2019, those classes would be that, that tide it's, would be turning. I um, was wondering, it's not, it's not bad. It's better. I would say the Los Angeles is better than New York. Oh, really? um, in terms of people on official house teams at UCB, it's a more diverse uh, population. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been true for a while. In levels one, two, and three of improv at almost every school these days, there's lots of women. 
Cool. Like I have taught classes at the level one or two level. I've taught a level two that was like 13 women and two men. Wow. That's great. Then what happens for, and this is the part that really needs to be examined and I don't really have the capacity or authority to do so is they start to fall off. And then by the time you get to the advanced levels, what do you mean? Is then those women don't pursue it? They don't re-enroll. Oh. So by the time you get to advanced levels, um, the the enrollment is down, and I feel like there's probably some dissuading going on, or there's some there's something going on where like you're losing the talent pool by the time it gets to the late levels. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if something happens similarly with diversity. Um, what do so, you think is happening? Uh, I don't know. Um, I. I mean, I, I don't know. There, there's probably more diversity in the teachers in early levels. Maybe that is a factor. Because it might be that the advanced levels are mostly dudes. Mm. There's, um, I mean, improv has its own history of Me Too moments um, throughout. And, and not just that, but like probably has some legacy of Me Too-ish culture. Well, I remember that, that Kurt Mesker thing was very famous. Uh, yeah. Um, that. Which Kurt Metzger? Because I know like four Kurt Metzger controversies. Oh my god! Uh, it was the one where he um, there was I don't I don't even know who actually, but somebody was accused uh, was was me too. I, I I don't I think they were accused of rape, but I'm not. I I want to watch my words in case that's wrong. And he was basically he went on Facebook and kind of said this whole thing that like a silly this guy shouldn't be shunned. But he was also he put it in some really, really controversial and yeah. shitty terms. But I think the idea he was trying to make is that, that, you know, the UCB community should not be the arbiter of this issue and this should be something handled. Um, and that's what he was trying to say, which I don't know that I agree with, but I, I think that is a much more articulate point, but he was, he put it, he made it in a very Kurt backhanded and sarcastic. And so but people were like, calling for him i think at the time you still had writer of amy schumer's show oh yes and yes. there were some really major public calls to have him fired from that show right and then he ended up i think talking to that woman who had made the accusa- accusation and he came out and apologized he's like yeah when i talked to her like it shook me i totally believe her yeah um that's the one i'm talking about i mean even that so that is all that to say that's the most public case of a ucb like me too thing that i am aware of yeah uh, there's been other ones but also uh aside from the individual events, I think what people underestimate too is like there's, there's individual incidents and then there's also like the fabric of a culture that is sort of okay with those things in general. And I think that's true of almost every industry going back. I don't think it's exclusive to improv or comedy or entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure if we look in the automotive industry 10 years ago, there's a lot more bullshit happening than there is now. Sure. Um, so, even if a woman coming through levels one, two, and three has never personally experienced something like that, I wouldn't be surprised if there's elements that end up just, I mean, improv is a very, like, you kind of do it while it's fun. If it's not fun, you're probably not going to enroll for the next class. Sure. If you hit a class that's not that fun, or if you don't find a support system, you know, the other thing that's sort of true in general about diversity is like, um, I think this is. I can only guess, but like I feel like there's a there's a thing that if you're a college kid that's a straight white guy that's like 21 and you're doing improv, you can look around and see a lot of guys like yourself and right. feel like, you know what? This is the place for me. That's going to be a very comfortable experience. Yeah. And even if no one... First of all, I know for a fact that people are very... People do kind of are welcoming to their own demographic, you know? Sure. like It's like, hey, you're one of us. And... 
you can feel alienated even if even if someone's not saying you're not one of us. If someone is saying you're one of us to everybody around you, it can feel alienating to the one person that isn't. Sure. Um, so another thing that I've often noted is that if you are an improv student and you go to see Harold Knight at UCB, if you're a straight white guy, on one night, let's say you see four teams, that's um, probably 32 players, you can probably see out of 32 actors, I bet you see minimum 10 different straight white guys, but probably more. But let's say I would I would have said twenty just then. Well, between ten and twenty guys that you're like, that guy's really funny. I could be like that guy, Mm -hmm. and you have a choice as to like tone, look, approach, energy level. Right, there's such a variety. Yeah, and you're like, man, I definitely have a home here. Like this guy, I'm simpatico with the way this guy plays. Mm -hmm. If you are a, a fat Asian person. Going to see. Can I ask where you're drawing that example from? <laughs> um, from uh, Kung Fu Panda. Okay. <laughs> and you go see shows at UCB. Uh, like fat Asian men probably have. Uh, I don't know who else is on the teams besides me, but like, or if, let's say you, if you just are wanting to like find someone to be like a role model, or like even just someone that shows you that it can be done, you can be on these teams. Let's say there's another person that looks like me that feels a bond with me or whatever just because they feel like i'm like someone they can that has a path that they might go on but then they come see me in an improv show and they hate the way that i do improv right well then they're like well them not that that mean like not that they can't be um inspired by nick mandernack or ross bryant or somebody like that but they don't have a selection of like 10 different guys that look like them that play all these different styles that can sort of be like role models for them. And I think those kind of things do affect people like on a macro level. I think those are possibly reasons why populations are like lower in certain things. Wow. How, so how do you go? How would you say we go about fixing that? Like, what do you, well, I'm you just, know, personally, I think I, they should ask me to be in more shows. <laughs> um, I don't know. I think that um, diversity in general, and I mean, I'm sure this is true in magic. Unfortunately, um, it is a very, you must be active about it constantly and you have to keep working on it constantly. It is not something, it doesn't seem like something that just gets, you fix a couple of things and the momentum kicks in and like, hey, we solved it. It seems like a thing that, you know, like there's a Twitter account right now called All White Shows, uh, which is extremely satisfying to look at. But oh, isn't it just like they just post the castles of every show that's only white people? They just screenshot cast photos of improv mm-hmm. shows that are all white. Right. And, Almost every single photo on that Twitter account has a friend of mine in it. Oh no! Like and and uh, I did realize yesterday that like, uh, well, I realized a couple of things. One is I realized I'll never be on that Twitter account. Like right. no show I ever am in will ever be on that I'll Twitter show, account. Yeah. Um, but also like, I kind of wonder how many of my friends, um, or how many shows that I've been I've been in have sort of consciously or unconsciously benefited from the fact that I'm in them. Cause then it's like, well, it's this diverse. Chris is in it. <laughs> you know, like oh, that's interesting. even if it shows like seven white people and me, right. It's like, well, I got that Chris is in it, you know, which is good. It's good. If I want to like, it's an advantage for me casting wise, I guess. Right. But it's also, it was interesting. I didn't never thought of it that way. Like, is there, am I serving like a purpose for people sometimes? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I don't know how to fix it. I think that you 
But I do think that it's a thing that as soon as you stop thinking about it, starts to shift back the other way. Because I don't think the people in those all-white shows have any intention of like shutting out minorities from being in their shows. Right. Um, improv is a very, I would say comedy in general, is a very collegial thing. And you tend to ask people that you know right. to be in things that you're working on. And uh, this is a sort of uh, random example, but I got, had my uh, oil changed in my car recently. Okay. Yeah, the Valvoline instant oil change. Okay. At the Valvoline it's instant oil change, yeah. every guy, every, it was all guys, every single person that worked there, and it was like 11 guys, they were all Hispanic men between 5, 8, and 6 feet at the tallest. Right. And I was like, these guys all look like they're from the same demographic. And I don't think it's on purpose. And I bet if I went to a different Valvoline, it wouldn't be true. But I was like, is there just a human thing of like when you're interviewing people, either you interview like people and you tend to like, like the people that look like you, or when you're applying for jobs, you go to get your oil change. You're like, I think I could apply for a job here. Like these guys, not, it's not a conscious thing. Sure. But is there like a self-selection going of like, right. You see, Oh, I would fit in here. Yeah. yeah, These are my, like you just said, like, this is my, yeah, you know, group. This is these are my people. So then, when you're doing that in like on your own projects, that might also happen too. Right. I mean, I assume magic is pretty like collegial in that way too. Sure. Oh my god. Um, I would assume that that's the the. I think the difficult thing about diversity is that you're often asking people to make employment decisions that sort of force them to work with people they don't know. Mm-hmm. Um. Because the alternative is for them to, I mean, this is the more sane alternative is just get people to know more people that aren't like them. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the, probably the, what we really want. Right. <laughs> but, um, you know, like I think when people are like, let's put a magic show together. The first, the first people you're going to think of are the people that you just kind of know. Right. As opposed to like let's make a concerted effort to like cast for the way a show looks. Um, another way that you might change it is that audiences might say like, we want to see shows with a diverse lineup mm-hmm. and that will be a factor in where I spend my money as an audience member. Right. And then you might be like, well, we got to have a diverse lineup or we're not going to get uh, sell tickets, which I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think it sounds like the goal is you want people making diverse shows because you should need to have diverse shows. That, but I, I don't think there's necessarily shame in saying people want to see this, so let's bring them what they want to start to get that the ball rolling on having more diverse shows. Yeah, I mean, sense? yes. The uh, I would say the flip side of that that's dangerous is going like, well, people want to see like all white lineups too. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But I'm saying if if if, if I oh, I hope I don't have to apologize for this later uh, <laughs> like if, if somebody puts together a, a show with a diverse cast partly due to you know well people want to see shows with a diverse audience that might not necessarily be the sincerest uh sincerest motivation uh-huh. right I, ideally at the end of the day you just want someone to go this it's better to have a diverse show for a mul- you know so many reasons yeah and we're also um i would say currently in a time and this is, this is a. Uh, I was going to say double edged sword. However, I think uh, the idea of a double edged sword is kind of redundant because <laughs> who has swords with only one edge? That's weird. 
I don't know. That's not a sword anymore, isn't it? That's a knife. Well, no, I feel like, okay, again, not to make a diverse example, but like I think of like, uh, like a katana. Those, I feel those like. Those only have one edge? I think so. Because they're, they're, they're curved. I think I don't think you can use those from the back. Well, as the kids say, I don't fuck with katanas. Right. Um, <laughs> do the kids say that? Does that? No. Uh, the kids do say, and you should know this as a millennial, they, they say fuck with in a way that we I don't relate to. Say, say what? So like, you know. Fuck, let's, what was the second word of that? Fuck with. It just, fuck with. Yeah. Fuck with. Fuck with. Yeah. Like um, oh, I don't fuck with that. Like, I don't fuck with Chris Angel. Oh, yeah. I don't fuck with Chris Angel. But like, that's not the common meaning of that phrase for anyone over 30, I would say. Sure. Because we would like if I said I don't fuck with you, it means like I don't mess with, mess with, like I'm not playing pranks on you or whatever. It doesn't mean like I don't appreciate your. It's just used in a positive way that I, you know, I really fuck with Rihanna's new CD. <laughs> or, or I, I said that just this morning. I really fuck with Rihanna's new CD. Yeah, uh, someone who says fuck with probably doesn't buy a CD. Is my is my guess. You're right. I said I really fuck with Rihanna's new cassette tape. Yeah. Rihanna's new eight track. Uh, well, no, with Rihanna's new whatever those beat tunes things we talked about that one time. Oh, uh, hit clips. Or yeah, whatever hit, they're hit called. Clips. Um, I fuck with Rihanna's laser disc. Yeah, I don't remember what I was talking about. Um, the oh, that this is um, now. You might want to cast your shows with diversity in mind, just so you don't get public blowback. Right, like there Which, is. I, I I think that's what that Twitter account is. Is about. not necessarily a bad thing to start with. Yeah. I think anything that gets the ball rolling on div- you know inclusion and diversity is positive. Yeah, to an extent. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want people like just profiteering off of diversity like that guy it's just a shame Coachella it... who owns Coachella. Oh right, uh, who is like super Trump supporter? Yeah, like super. Uh, um, like uh, like yeah, conservative asshole. Trump supporter. It's just a shame that Di Vernon never started a school for magic because he could have called it the diversity. <laughs> the di- oh, fuck, that's good. <laughs> um, th- this is the only place I could say that joke for anyone to appreciate. Um, we're actually getting close to an hour again. Are we really? We've, this is a pretty good banked episode, I would this say. This is a pretty good banked episode. This is a deep one. Um, well, let me ask you this question then, yes. while, right before I forget. Um, given that you've known lots and lots of people on the uh, say it again. The all white shows. Yes. Um, have you talked to anybody that you've seen on that about it? I have not. Okay. I'm. A, I'm not sure how to start that conversation. Also, most of the time, it's not. Those aren't the people booking those shows. Sure. But I was. I. I well, that was a. I did have a friend it. recently book a stand-up show. Uh, a friend of mine in stand-up that I know very well, and I've had this person on my shows before, and they booked a show at a theater very close to here that was an all white lineup and they could have very easily asked me to do it. And I was a little surprised again. I, it'd be nice if they asked me, but I was also like, I think it's part of it is like there for many, many people, there isn't a part of them that checks the lineup at some point. And says, okay, wait, let's me see who I actually have. Like, right. what does this lineup actually look like? Right. They're just like, which I don't great. think necessarily. And again, I don't want to be a spokesperson for these people, but I, I don't think that always necessarily comes from like a, hateful place no, I think no, no. it comes I from a place it's... of like I'm you know not racist and I'm not really thinking about race when I'm putting the show yes. together but I think nowadays it's beyond that that's a, I think a very mid 2000s thing to say and do uh, as a way of like I this think is how we that racism I think it's just that it's just not a priority for people for certain people mm-hmm. and I think people tend to have priorities for demographics that they belong to I think that if a female booker 
I'd be very surprised if a female booker isn't aware of how many women they book onto a lineup. Of course. Um, and I think it does take some effort to sort of um, work across intersections to like groups that you aren't, you know, part yeah. of. It has to be a very conscious thing. That's why I am so, like, I admire so much what Paul F. Tompkins did with his Spontaneous Nation podcast in the last year. What was that? Which is he specifically was like, we are going to book more women and people of color on this show and LGBT mm. comedians for the last like 50 episodes of that show, which is why, I mean, I'm not in under any illusion, but like I was on that show five times in one year. Right. That guy's great. Um, and he awesome. spoke about it very publicly about like why he was doing it. Mm-hmm. And it didn't really, um, you know, it wasn't necessarily to his benefit because he was, um, taking away slots from like lots and lots of his friends who had been on the show before. And he basically had to work with a bunch of people he didn't know. Right. Um, but to so publicly make a push for it and to really like, um, to walk the walk in terms of how he booked the, ri- if you look at the lineups for the last like 30 to 50 spontaneous nations, it's mm-hmm. like, how many did he do? Like a hundred, 200, 200. Yeah. There, it's almost, was that an issue he was having in the first 150 or so? Uh, no, I don't think he was ever like called out. I think I don't actually, I should ask him like what made him sort of turn the corner on it. Um, right. No, I don't, it wasn't ever like, I mean, that show was the same as all the other shows in terms of like how diverse it was, which mm-hmm. is like not super diverse, but I don't know. Um, I mean, how do we solve this problem in magic? I don't want, you know, like I said, I, I don't know really. I mean, again, I, I do fall into that same thing. Like if you asked me to name five or six people, I would book for a, like a stand-up sort of variety show, uh, I would, you know, a lot of them would be white males. Well, that's why you always got Robert. That's why I always got Robert in the old back pocket. <laughs> little, old Rob Ram magic. Um, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, Robert would always be my first call, and then, but a lot of them are are, are white uh, are white male, males. I, I think you, the thing is with magic especially, and this is something that is kind of a problem in and of itself is that you have such a very, very small community of magicians. Yeah. Uh, and it's not like, I mean, you know, got to has to be what? 10 to one comedians to magicians. Yeah. I mean, probably 20 more. to one, yeah. you know, some huge number. So the proportions are, uh, I would say probably a little bit great. I'd say there are probably more white males to uh, people of color or women in magic than there are in comedy. Would yes. Be my I think that's guess. probably true. Yeah. And then you have, you know, you have the the same ratio of talented, you know, magicians of color, talented women to talented men. That that's just like that, base talent. You mean. Yeah, just yeah. like you know, who are strong performers that I would want representing my show. Yeah, the ratio of you know how many good women to bad women, how many good you know uh, magicians of color to bad magicians of color. How many good white magicians to good bad magicians? That ratio will be the same. But given that there are, does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. It might be different based on. Um, I, I would probably agree with that in terms of who's interested and who starts. But like, the magicians that make it through years one through five, I feel like that system might, like we were talking about with improv. Oh, uh, that's people, and that very well be maybe people true. might be leaving it, and that ratio might start getting skewed. Well, what I'm basing that off of, and again, I, I don't have a lot of personal experience on this issue unfortunately is thinking of kayla and carissa's podcast uh, shazam yeah which is uh very good and they, they delve into a lot of these issues they have an episode Although we will reiterate not to listen to yeah, it. yeah don't listen to any other podcast besides yeah. this one of course please thank you um 
But they have an episode, should you ever feel so inclined, uh, once you've listened to every episode on this podcast three or four times over and you really need something else, there's, they, they have an episode titled, Why Are Women Not Good at Magic? Or something along those lines. Yeah. It really piqued my interest, so I listened to it. They were saying was, th- their claim was that the ratio of good women to bad women in magic is the same as good men to bad men. It's just yeah. that people think, oh, women aren't good at magic. Because that number of women doing magic is so, so, so much smaller than men. Yeah. So then when you have that same ratio, maybe, let's say it's 20% of all people that do magic are good in any group. 20% of white male magicians are good and the other 80 are shit. Yeah. So, let's say, you know, I think somewhat fairly maybe assume that it's the same ratio to women. Then 20% of that already very small number is going to be incredibly small. Mm-hmm. And then people go, oh, women aren't good at magic. There are so few talented female magicians. But that's just an issue of the overall representation rather than it is a statement about females, m- female magicians. Yeah. I, that, that's kind of their claim. And I, again, I hope I'm not... If I do misrepresent that, I do apologize. But that, that I was wonder, my understanding. I wonder how much general audience even thinks about this at all. Like, I don't know if a general audience, if they went to Magic Castle and saw... I'm talking about people under... <laughs> a certain age, I right. guess. I I, th- I think they do. I because I think I I do get asked a lot about how many female magicians there are. Um, and I there's like I said, I don't have a lot of personal experience, but I I think of a Pendulette quote, which is about two years old, year and a half old, uh, where he was talking about, you know, Penn and Teller. They stand in the lobby and they greet every single guest to their show, and yeah. they want to talk to them after their show, and it takes like an hour and a half, which I have a whole spiel on. Um, on Q and A's or yeah. like meet and greets on meet and greets. Um, <laughs> I have a whole thing on that, which we can get into. I don't know how long we've been recording. <laughs> We're at all 57. We'll we save for the next banked episode. Sure. Uh, let's write it down then. Uh, yeah. Cause I don't want to forget it. Um, anyway, but he was saying that in the last couple years, because people will always, you know, walk out of pants and say, Hey, can I show you a magic trick? Especially yeah. like younger magicians or people just getting into magic. And of course he's very gracious and will say, yes, he just noted that the ratio of men to women doing that has heavily shifted over the last couple of years. And now, you know, in many cases, more women than men are walking up to him asking to show him magic tricks. Um, So uh, something's happening and there is a wave coming. I don't know exactly what's sparking that. That's not the part that I, I just, I'm not sure that a regular audience, if you ask them, Hey, like are women good at magic? I feel like they might just be like, huh? Like that's not something I have ever thought about. That's potentially true, but I would say, I've had a lot of non-magicians that I've taken to the castle or just in general ask me about women and magic. Yeah, and... I think that's a different question. But I think okay. that, I think generally, I really... Then you kind of have lost me a little bit. I doubt that a regular person off the street has any opinion about whether women are good at magic. Right. I, now, they might say, like, who are good female magicians? But I doubt that they have a strong bias to say, like, women aren't good at magic. I, I mean, I kind of think people on the street might not think about magic that much at all right? to have a strong opinion sure. about that. Like, I don't know yeah, that... It's weird to have public conversations about diversity in a field that most of the public doesn't know anything about. Yeah. Now, I think that if we ask people in the magic community, then I think you might get a very different answer. Sure. And that might be something also to fight because of the way shows are put together. And also, because of the uh, nature of the community, before up until YouTube, how knowledge is dis- dispensed. It's very much, it, or it was very much like you kind of have to have access to people um, in a way to like get better at magic. Right. You kind of, and so the then those factors really start to come into play. Right. Um, Cause if you don't feel like you belong in the club, 
then what's the chance? Like, I, I wonder how many women have like gone to like their local IBM thing or whatever and gone once and then been like, eh, this isn't really my deal. Probably a lot. Um, did you never, were you never exposed to that sort of club? I, 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 I had an IBM ring, a ring 21. Uh-huh. Um, I went a lot when I was a kid. They met like once a month. It was difficult to go because it was so far away. Oh, it was. Uh, Is there like, only one for your area? Kinda, and and like the greater LA, there, there aren't a uh, there isn't a huge influx of magic clubs in LA the way there are in other cities uh-huh. because of the Magic Castle. That oh, is kind of the dominant. There's like an one SAM and one IBM in the general area, and that's that's. By the way, what's the difference between those two groups? I mean, one is the Society of American Magicians and one is the International Are they like of Magicians. Rivalish? I don't really know. Every couple of years they do a joint convention. They have their own conventions but have a joint one every couple of years. And the last few runs, that has been where the North American Championships, which feeds in the FISM, oh. that has been a joint convention. Uh, at some point, one day I want to have someone from the retail end of Magic come and explain to me what Murphy's Magic is. It is a distributor... I mean, I just want someone to explain to me why Murphy's Magic has so much power that it does. Right. And what's funny is they say they're like ju- they're supposed to be just distributing to certain companies and certain like magic shops, but every now and again, if you order something from like Penguin, occasionally it comes directly, come Mur- directly oh, from I've, Murphy's. I've definitely you're had like, that. what the fuck? For sure. In fact, yeah. I have ordered things from people. Yeah, and then I uh, I ordered something from someone. It came from Murphy's, and then I had an issue. Like the code to get the video tutorial was wrong. Right. And I ended up just calling Murphy's, getting customers over. Like, I was essentially I just worked with Murphy's the whole time, so they basically drop shipped something. <laughs> it's very strange. Um, well, uh, we should we'll talk about meet and greets at some point. Yes, let's write that down. Um, I also did think about something, um, about method, about people like the the concern about exposure of method and stuff. What about it? Uh, it's probably too long for it. And I have to, for basically my thought was something along the lines of like, don't worry about exposure of methods so much. It's similar to what you're saying about like, you could take an, a strong performer and give them six tricks from a magic store and have them put an act together. If you, the art has to be about more than that, about more than the methods mm-hmm. for it to have a robustness separate from that problem you're describing, right? Which, oh yeah, this is going to get into a long discussion, but which raises another question about the way pu- people publicly see magic. Yeah. And they don't see it as what you just described. They see it as the method. And mm-hmm. if I can, f- they see it as a trick. They see it as the method. So I think when we watch a show and when I watch a show, there's so much stuff I can, you know, I can like, for instance, Ted Kim is a great example of that. Ted Kim does not have an incredibly magic heavy act. It's an incredible act. If I ever have an opportunity to put it on a stage um, and book it somewhere, I absolutely would uh-huh. because it's so entertaining and it's interesting and it's weird and it's memorable and it's emotional and it's and it's got some very good magic in it. It is not an incredibly magic heavy act and it kind of defies what a magic act is supposed to be and that is like heavily based on magic. Yeah. Uh, and just like the, the astonishment alone. Um, and so when you know, we think of magic in terms of, oh yeah, there is a bigger performance element to it just beyond the method, but I don't know that a lot of public audiences see it that way, Yeah, which is a big pr- sort of, which is uh, a big thing I kind of want to think about in the future. Well, it's interesting because I think that's your, uh, that is a, 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 an art form's way of maybe getting away from the, hey, I just buy tricks and do them right. side. And also, I, like if I go see Zabrecki, um, I feel like, there are certain magicians where I feel like you get away from that. Like even when I bring non-magicians to come see Zabrecki, mm-hmm. 
they are kind of like, oh, how did he do that? But they're not really that obsessed with the methods of sure. his act. They're kind of just blown away by his character. All right. Well, strap in because we're about to get into this. <laughs> <laughs> well, save it for our next banked one. Oh, man. Okay. This is a good suspense. This is, I, I'm, really, I'm really feeling the fire now. Uh, but okay. Okay. So we're going to talk about meet and greets. We're going to talk about methods. Yeah. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.